I received more than 300 responses yesterday to my text message that I sent out in the morning asking people if they thought we should grill the candidates for office this year on whether they support the big lie about the stolen election and hold Donald Trump accountable for the insurrection. It's more than double the previous response high I've ever gotten. A lot of passion in the air. Politics is big in Ohio, and politics is one of the things we talk about on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with Laura Johnston and Lisa Garvin. Layla is absent today. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. We got good stuff to talk about at the top of this podcast. Let's go. First, we got the nation's only Peloton factory, and now Ohio appears ready to land another huge tech factory. Lisa, what is it and where would it go? Well, details are sketchy, but it looks like we could be in the running for a very large uh, semiconductor chip factory. And the area they're looking at or the area that's being rumored is being looked at is New Albany, which is a town of 11,000 population, about 20 miles east of Columbus. Um, uh, Andrew Tobias has been digging into the story for quite a long time. There are certain things he cannot reveal at this point, but it looks like that New Albany is trying to get their ducks in a row for this. Uh, there, uh, there was a meeting back on the 27th of December in Jersey Township in Licking County, and they approved their side of an annexation agreement with New Albany for up to 3,600 acres for development over the next five to 10 years. And there are rumors that that factory will probably go there. That would be the site for it. Also rumors that we're competing with New York State for this this chip factory. Uh, the New Albany city manager, Joseph St- Stefanov, says, it might not be as much as 3,600 acres, might be 500 or 1,000. The, the site that they're looking at is mostly farmland, and there's a small residential subdivision involved as well. There's a company called the New Albany Company. It's a real estate company owned by Les Wexner, and he's been trying to develop a high-tech biz corridor, and he's been buying up land in the area. So this all seems to be you know, falling in line. Interesting, I didn't know that New Albany actually has facilities that are built or planned from Facebook, Amgen, which is a biopharmaceutical uh, company, and Amazon Web Services. So it's quite a, it's, it's quite a little like business, you know, pot boiler there already. So sounds good. And actually, I'm excited. I mean, I think Ohio is so well positioned for reshoring of manufacturing of chips and other things. So I really hope this comes to pass. Well, this is just huge. I mean, it sounds like this will be the biggest investment in economic development in Ohio history. And it's a success for Jobs Ohio. A lot of people questioned when John Kasich put together Jobs Ohio because it's very secretive and it pays people a lot of money. But by removing this whole development thing from the government, it's it's successful. I mean, to, if you can land something like this, it's a game changer for the economy and it gives Mike DeWine something that he can really trumpet as he runs for reelection. People always ask, why isn't Northeast Ohio getting a piece of this? And there's always a couple of reasons. One, we don't have that kind of land uh, that we can put together. We're mostly built that. And two, we're pretty hostile to development, even mm. though people claim they want this kind of thing. They don't, and they don't work together. And Northeast Ohio has a terrible reputation when it comes to landing the big fish. But man, this is just so different. And it's tech. You know, Ohio, uh-huh. like you said, Lisa, you know, our manufacturing is is what you consider Rust Belt manufacturing, steel and autos and all that stuff, which is important. But this would be a gigantic 
move forward into tech. So big win for Andrew Tobias. He's been working on this since middle of last fall. He really wanted to be the one to break it and he nailed it and uh, good for him. Everybody is following in his footsteps now Mm -hmm. trying to catch up. It'll be interesting to see. The only thing we haven't been able to lock down to a point where we can report it is which company it is, although there aren't a whole lot of them. So it's pretty easy to, to speculate. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is Jim Jordan so afraid of? Why won't he appear before his colleagues to discuss what he knows about the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol? All right, he wrote a long letter laying out a lot of poppycock for why he won't <laughs> come and answer some basic <laughs> questions. He did. His, his letter is actually very indignant when I was reading it. It's like, wow, you're not just saying no thank you. You are just berating the people who are asking you to come. He says the request is so far is far outside the bounds of any legitimate inquiry, violates core constitutional principles, and would serve to further erode legislative no- norms. And he's basically saying this doesn't serve a purpose. It's outside of what Congress is supposed to be doing. He calls it basically a wish, witch hunt and says he's not going to participate. It's so bogus what he's trying to claim. I mean, this was the closest we've come to losing our government. The people that staged the violent riot at the Capitol were trying to stop the peaceful exchange of power. They Mm -hmm. wanted to block the certification of Joe Biden's win and keep Donald Trump in power, which would have basically created a dictatorship in America. He has communication that he was doing with key players in this at the time. I want to ask him what he knows. What did Donald Trump tell you? Was Donald Trump secretly plotting with these people? What do you know? And to be indignant and say they have no business trying to get to the bottom of it. It's just a smokescreen. It makes me wonder just how bad he's going to look when the information comes out. Right. Like his viewpoint is that I was just doing research for congressional duty and this is no different than anything else. And you have no right to ask me because this is going to set a dangerous precedent. It's like, I cannot believe you can bring in the terms dangerous precedent. We are talking about a riot that killed people at the Capitol. Like that is a dangerous precedent. Right. And th- look, this was about toppling democracy. That, that there's, I mean, the, the people that have any common sense that watched what happened and have heard what sparked it know what was going on here. This is, there's zero evidence that this election was stolen. And yet the former president has created this ridiculous campaign that has a lot of believers just because they believe in him. Jim Jordan has a duty to answer the questions. He's an elected official that was part of the process. And for him to write an indignant letter full of a lot of nonsense shows that he probably has something to hide. He is afraid of something. Well, and it's funny because Republicans originally wanted him on the committee and he's mad that he's not because he says this isn't legitimate. It's not really bipartisan because he's not allowed to be on the committee. Well, how can you be on the committee when you're like a witness to what happened? I mean, that's like being on the jury when you're a witness in court. It makes no sense. Well, and remember how squiggly he was when it came out that he was talking to Donald Trump during the riot. Mm-hmm. And and then it was, well, how many times did you talk to Donald Trump? And he's trying to duck it left and right. Well, if he was communicating with Donald Trump during those long hours when Trump was silent, we need to know what he knows. I mean, mm-hmm. if Donald Trump actually was an instigator of an attempted violent overthrow of the government, there needs to be a reckoning. And he has information that can lead to that. So it'll be very, very interesting to see whether they 
force him to talk by subpoena or hold him in contempt if he refuses. Jim Jordan, back in the news. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Remember when nurses from Ohio went to other states to help relieve the crush of patients at overburdened hospitals at the start of the pandemic? How have times changed deep into the pandemic, Lisa? We're actually trying to get help from out of state, and it is arriving in dribs and drabs. The Ohio Department of Health has a contract with a a staffing agency called ProLink. They signed it uh, December 17th, and it goes through the 30th of June of this year, although may be extended if it needs to be. But uh, so far, only four hospitals in Ohio have taken advantage of these these uh, staffing uh, offers. ProMedica Toledo Hospital has seven registered nurses and 14 respiratory therapists so far, and they'll be adding some every Monday until they reach 100 total. Uh, Mount Carmel Hospitals in Columbus, Premier Health in Del- Dayton, and Trinity Health Systems in Steubenville have, uh, you know, signed contracts with ProLink, and they should have help arriving soon. These hospitals will be paying for the staffing costs for these these out-of-state uh, nurses and respiratory therapists, and they're definitely needed. As of Monday, yesterday, Ohio had 6,747 people hospitalized with COVID. That's a record. 1,276 are in the ICU, and 859 of them are on ventilators. Um, in April of this year, uh, 13 Cleveland Clinic are in, uh, I'm sorry, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. This is in reverse of what happened last year. Right as the pandemic was starting, Ohio wasn't as hard hit as other areas. So we sent 13 Cleveland Clinic registered nurses to Detroit's Henry Ford Hospital, and they were glad to have it. And then, of course, you know, we've had National Guard deployed here since December. We've had over 2,300 National Guardsmen deployed here in Ohio to help in hospitals, but most of them aren't doctors. They're helping with other tasks. And when you say last year, you mean 2019, because we're in a new year. The, re- the beginning of the pandemic was almost two years ago. 2020. God, that's right. 20, uh, not 2020. Right, 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 God, it seems like these last <laughs> 20... years are all rolling yeah, together. Really, it's like so, the lost period. So the Washington Post had a story today that said probably Thursday the U.S. will set its new record for most hospitalizations, breaking the record sent a year ago on January 14th. It's interesting how seasonal this virus seems to be, just like the flu. But it also said, even though this is hard to project, that the numbers could greatly be exceeded in the coming weeks. And so it'll be interesting to see how much of this sharing of nurses continues if in almost every hospital in the nation, they're overwhelmed by people needing treatment. I know in Texas, they've had to call in extra nurses in some parts of Texas where there are hotspots. So yeah, if we have more of these hotspots and and their people are out sick with COVID, you know, their staff, yeah, this could be a, a snowball rolling downhill. Well, it, it takes you back to Italy in 2020, where there were so many people at the hospital, they just couldn't get to them. And there were people that were in a bad way and they ended up dying. Frightening times. I mean, we are it, it, getting to the peak of this surge. Actually, the numbers in Ohio have started to go down. But as we know, the hospitalizations lag by a couple of weeks and sort of the death. So we'll have to see if the hospitalizations start to drop maybe next week in Ohio, if not the rest of the nation. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
What is the reason for the new delay in Cleveland restarting its recycling program? Laura, I thought this was supposed to start in December. We've talked and talked and talked about this. It changed into an opt-in program where only people that were willing to sort their trash would be in, but it didn't start. And now we're told it's back to square one. Exactly. Where they have to rebid the whole whole idea of the program. And you're right. This isn't the first delay. There was a, re- a delay back in the fall when they were waiting for more people to sign up. It's more than 27,000 households want to opt into recycling in Cleveland, which is optimistic and, and that's positive. But because there's so much contamination in recycling in Cleveland, nobody wants this job. They couldn't reach a contract with the contractor they wanted to have. And this was under Frank Jackson's administration under the end of his term, his obviously his 16 year tenure. And he did work toward this, but it said, however, due to our city's history of excessive contamination, including yard waste and recycling carts, the city and vendor are unable to agree upon contract details. And this is sad because I mean, recycling is an easy way that you can help the environment. I know it's not the end all be all, but like if you, if you like to do it, then you can make a difference. But I mean, I don't know who's putting yard waste in their recycling carts. I mean, unless people are just really confused on which is which. Except the the way we were going to deal with that in Cleveland was to have it be by volunteer. Right. So if you volunteered to be recycling, you were volunteering to be much more careful about what you put in your bin. So I'm I'm confused as to why this became a problem. If well, I'm... I think it's the past. I, I mean, I think they were looking at the past numbers and you're right. Like you could say, we're going to be much better now, but we don't have any proof of just how much better. I know. But if you go in and say, look, before it was the whole city, now it's whatever it was, 30%, you know, we're, we're going to clearly be better. Why? I, I don't know. I'm thrown. Anyway, it's sad because there are a lot of people who are interested in this. Every time we write a story, lots of people read it. And yet here we are again. The big the big city is failing to do the basics of recycling. Yep. I mean, especially a city that wants to be seen as you know sustainable, you know, a green city on a blue lake to not have recycling in the core city is pretty sad. Have we heard from Justin Bibb? I mean, he's been mm-hmm. in office for a week and clearly this could be part of his initiative. His spokeswoman said the revised bid should be sent out soon. The timeline will depend on bid responses and getting a contract executed. The good news is we did get a statement from the city, which feels like an improvement sometimes. (laughs) All All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The new pills that can help people get over COVID quickly are going to be in short supply. So how can people in Northeast Ohio get them? Lisa? Well, they have to be sick or they have to be at high risk for being sick. And when you say short supply, it's really short supply. Only 300,000 of the Merck pills are available nationwide and only 65,000 of the Pfizer pills are available nationwide. Uh, Here in Northeast Ohio, University Hospitals, Cleveland Clinic, Summa Health and Southwest General Health Center have received their allotment of both of these pills. Um, Let's talk a little bit about these pills. Pfizer, the pill is called Paxlovid. It's a protease inhibitor, which blocks a key step in the virus replication and drugs using this technology have been used on HIV for years. Pfizer is maybe the much better pill. It reduces the hospitalization and death risk by 88%. And uh, the Merck 
pill. It's, it was developed in uh, combination with Ridgeback Therapeutics. It's called Molnupiravir. It reduces hospitalizations and death risk by 30%, and that's compared to the 88% with um, Pfizer. And this is with high-risk unvaccinated patients. Both of these really have to be taken within five days of symptoms appearing. And there's a little bit of worry about the Merck because the way the Merck one works is that it inserts errors into the gen- the COVID genetic code to halt replication, but people are worried that this might create new variants. And the Merck pill is for adults only, while the Pfizer pill can be used with patients, you know, 12 years and up. But yeah, a UH only received 120 courses of the Pfizer pill, and they're prioritizing their patients. Those are at, you know, high risk because of comorbidities or, or you know, uh, other issues. So yeah, it's going to be a while before you can get a hold of those pills. And only so through a for, hospital. For people... The experience we're hearing from most people who have gotten the vaccination and the booster is when they get it, which a lot of people are, it's it's pretty mild. So these pills wouldn't be for them. This is for people that that present a pretty serious danger of getting seriously ill or dying. Correct. Correct. And they do, like I said, time is of the essence, apparently with both of these pills, they really have to be taken prescribed within five days of the onset of symptoms. So there's a short little window there. And these pills are not recommended yet for pregnant women. They don't have enough data on that yet, but yeah, outside of a hospital setting, there's, there's no way to get these pills at this point, although they're ramping up production. So that's kind of like Tamiflu. There's a, you have a certain number of hours after you get flu symptoms. Is it 48 or 72? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have to take that and it'll stop it in its tracks. I did that once and it did stop it in its tracks. It was, it was amazing. I hope these work as well. You're listening to today in Ohio. What are some of the interesting Northeast Ohio proposals for grants that clear contaminated land called brownfields? Laura, we talked earlier about how we really don't have the land to assemble to attract things like a, a microchip plant or a Peloton factory. But a lot of the land we do have is seriously contaminated by previous development, and that's very expensive to clean up. There's some money available now, and there, there are landowners that are applying for it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we're talking about $350 million from Ohio for brownfield remediation. That could mean neutralizing PCBs in soil, removing asbestos and lead paint from buildings, basically any kind of contamination. And if you look at some of the photos in Pete Cross's story, I mean, one of them honestly looks like an old barn with a silo and so much space around it. Obviously, it has a big building on it, too, with broken out windows. You think these parcels could be really good for something if they were cleaned up because no business when they could get, you know, pristine green property wants to come in and put in millions of dollars to clean up a site even before they can build on it. So there's about two dozen Uh, applications in with the county because you need a local government to sign off on this before the state will give you money. And uh, a lot of them sound really interesting. The Foundry Project project hopes to create a multi-use business park near Opportunity Corridor, and that would include a fish farm, a CBD grow operation, and a tech support center. Crooked River Equity Partners wants to remediate the former site of accurate plating near East 65th and Carnegie in Cleveland. Uh, Bedford Heights wants to remediate a former metal dine plant on Cannon Road. Metro Health wants money for an environmental assessment and remediation of 1.5 acres to that 
pre previously uses were a bar, a furniture store, and a service station. A gas station obviously has a lot of contamination. They want to put 80 senior housing units on the property and a headquarters for the police force. So these are all really useful ideas for properties that you know could be could have a whole new life. So what happens now? Does does the government choose which ones to send along, or does everybody who's applied get sent along and then? Some cabal somewhere decides who gets the money. <laughs> some cabal with ties to some developers, right? I mean, this is Ohio. <laughs> but no, this is supposed to be a grants on a first-come, first-served basis. And that's in contrast with the past when there was more of an element of ranking. So this first deadline is coming up January 31st. You get your projects in there. You're going to be able to get the first shot of the money. Each of the state's 88 counties is guaranteed at least a million dollars for cleanup. And for projects that come within that threshold, 100% of the grant requests will be funded. After that $1 million, they'll start uh, funding at 75% of the cost. The limit per project is $10 million. Huh. But but if a lot of projects are in, who who gets counted as first for first come, first served? Well, they're talking about multiple rounds, like at least three rounds. So I don't think they think they're going to exhaust $350 million in the first round. Okay. Well, very good. I, I mean, I love the idea of getting something going on Opportunity Carter. We've talked about what a game changer that road can be. The vision for that really was to develop a forgotten corner of the city be nice to get some of that land cleaned up and have that get done. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why did the Cleveland Metro Parks pay $3 million for a parking lot? Lisa, the Metro Parks have been very busy these last 10, 15 years, really developing lots more land and doing very cool things for people. And we all love our parks, but a parking lot? Well, but it's right on the river, I, and it's a small parking lot. It's only a half an acre. It's at 1290 Old River Road, and if if my if I'm looking at the map right, that's near the Willow Street Lift Bridge, which, go, which goes over to the new Wendy Park Bridge. So there, and this is part of Metro Park's long-term plan to increase access not only to our lakefront but to our riverfront on the Cuyahoga. So they wanted to grab this parking lot while they could. Uh, it was three million dollars, as you say. It will remain a parking lot for now, but it's part of this whole big vision for the Valley Plan, which is like a big 10-year master plan for the for eight miles of the Cuyahoga River from the lake backwards. And, you know, they this plan was approved last July, and the, the crux of the vision for the Valley is to increase public access points along the river's front. So they're just nabbing it up while they can. And this is kind of a crucial little piece over there. Um, you know, there are trails that lead near there and around there. So um, it would be nice to have that, you know, tied down for public access and not as a parking lot. They didn't say when, you know, exactly the parking lot will go away, but at least they have the land in hand. Laura, you've done a lot of paddle boarding and kayaking and things on the water. Do, do you think that there's a big need for a good river point access for people? Yes, 100% yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, people use Merwin's Wharf, um, and that's pretty accessible. And there's a parking lot there. It's near, it's kind of in between the two rowing areas, the Cleveland Rowing Foundation and the Foundry. Mm -hmm. But anywhere you can get more access to the, the river and not just for people to put their kayaks and paddle boards in, but just to be able to sit by the river and see those freighters go down. I mean, we really have an incredible vantage point here in Cleveland to see a working 
you know, the working great lakes. And mm -hmm. so anything that I'm all for buying more riverfront land, I mean, wouldn't it be amazing? I know we have the towpath and it's very cool. And I've biked over that lift bridge, which has its own problems, but wouldn't it be cool if you could actually ride your bike next to the river the whole way? I mean, mm -hmm. It's, yeah, just, it's just more evidence of what a jewel the metro parks are. Yeah. I, I mean, if you look at what they've done and if you spend time in them, it's one of the the smartest assets that the, the planners of this region put together back in the day. And it's generally a really well-run operation and they're generally safe. And it's just they keep getting better and better. It's Absolutely. A, yeah. and, I, and it is unfortunate that we, that we have to claw back, you know, like that we weren't forward thinking in the past that right. we have all of this access. So $3 million for a half an acre parking lot, right? It's a lot of money, but they don't, you can't make more land. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and trying to stitch all that together because they are, there are little chunks of the towpath trail and other trails that are just not quite finished because they don't have that last little half mile or quarter mile of land. So I think this is really wonderful. I thought the towpath was finished. I, I don't think the entire 110 miles no. is, but, from, but in the flats, yes, they they do have it connected. I'm just saying it's not, you're kind of going between buildings sometimes. Right. It's mm -hmm. not all on the riverfront. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. It's today in Ohio. How have COVID concerns in Cleveland crushed the hopes of some music lovers in Miami? Laura, we were talking before the podcast. Lisa was talking about how she's felt like we've gotten back into isolation with this surge. People are staying home from restaurants and we're all kind of being curbed again this winter. This is a, a pretty stark one for Miami. Yeah, this is sad for the folks that were really looking forward to seeing the Cleveland Orchestra in Florida. It's the second year that they've had to cancel their Miami residency. That included two weeks of programs at the Arsht Center in Miami, as well as concerts in West Palm Beach and Naples. And basically, this was the 15th annual plan, and they'd been anticipated as a return to normal. But you look at the COVID cases, and you just can't risk it. So there were supposed to be programs Saturday, uh, January 21st and 22nd second of that weekend, the 28th, 29th. And uh, big, big event that was supposed to be taking place. They were symphonies, Tchaikovsky Symphony Number no. 4, Dvorak Symphony Number no. 8, Mozart's Limp Symphony. I'm probably butchering all of these and I'm sorry, but there's no plans to reschedule these performances or fill in the weeks at Severance in Cleveland because, I mean, they, they can't even do the MLK concert, right? It's just COVID's too bad to, to gather everyone together for music. It's the second winter where we're just kind of cloistering ourselves away again. I hope this isn't the long-term future of every winter there'll be a COVID variant. At least they are getting seemingly weaker. But it does kind of go with what you were saying before we started, Lisa, about how this surge has, has curbed our behaviors. Right. You know, I mean, Omicron and I, I was talking to my doctor last week, you know, and I was asking him about masks and he says, oh yeah, you need to have a KN95, a KF94 or an N95 mask. Nothing else is going to cut it. He says, this is the most contagious thing he's ever seen since the measles. And so, and I'm wow. not, and I'm not, I'm not someone who frightens easily. I mean, I was eating in restaurants long before other people were, but I'm just not, you know, I, I think the numbers are against me here. 
Yeah, <laughs> it seems like we're right back into the winter of 2021. Or is it 2020? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I, I do agree. That I think that people are just trying to wait this out and they're not making a lot of firm plans. I haven't seen anybody, you know, birthday parties or texts like, let's get together. I think people are just like, we had our big holidays. We had a lot of socialization. Let's just hunker down and get through this month and then see what it looks like on the other side, which is why everyone should go skiing because it's outside. <laughs> it's today in Ohio. We'll give you a couple minutes back today. We're ending a little bit early. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening to this podcast. <laughs>